So this evening I'd like to talk about the quality of renunciation. Often when people hear this word, and certainly when I first heard this word, it conjures up a sense of, to me anyway, medieval monks in cold monasteries and taking cold plunges at the thought of a passion and lust and wearing haircloth shirts and things like that. And when I encountered the Buddhist tradition, I realized that renunciation had a much different meaning than one of self-denial and uh, almost self-abuse, really. From the perspective of Buddha Dharma, renunciation is really this quality of letting go, the quality of letting go of that which brings suffering, and the actual very act itself of letting go of renunciation brings about in that moment a quality of freedom. There's a story of a famous Indian saint, Ananda Mayama, who I'm sure many of you are familiar with. One day four wealthy businessmen showed up at her ashram and she was renowned to be a very beautiful, serene teacher. And they said to her, they said, we can't understand you're so beautiful and so gifted. Why you chose this very hard, ascetic, renunciate life? And she began laughing. And actually began laughing uncontrollably. And the, all the businessmen turned to each other and looked quite bemused. And they said, why are you laughing? And she said, well, it's so funny that you, who've given up everything just to earn some money and gain some material possessions... You've actually given up everything. Whereas I have given up that pursuit and have gained everything. I have gained knowledge of God. I have gained knowledge of love. And that in itself has given me everything. So this is a spirit that I want to talk about tonight. The spirit of renunciation that really opens up everything. It's important to see this quality of renunciation in the context of our deepest aspirations. And we can, we can turn to the life of the Buddha as a good example of that. He, as far as we know, <coughs> grew up as a wealthy prince and had access to a lot of material wealth and luxury, <coughs> as much as India could offer at that time. But he saw that it didn't lead to a lasting happiness. It didn't resolve the questions of birth and death for him. And so he gave it up. He gave up his family, his, his uh, possessions, his wealth. And he went uh, into the wandering life, renunciate life, which in that time and still is a very ascetic tradition. Begging for food, living, just wearing rags. Very dependent on the goodwill of people for food and whatnot. And yet it was this very renunciation that allowed him to go deep into the holy life. And through that uh, journey, gained full realization. So in that sense, his renunciation really supported his awakening. In a more contemporary example, we have the life of Thoreau. We spent a few years not far from here at Walden Pond. 
And he said this about his journey there. He said, I went to the woods because I wished to live deliberately, to front only the essential facts of life, and see if I could lean, see if I could learn what it had to teach, and not, when I came to die, discover that I had not lived. So for, for, for Thoreau, he found that his worldly life, the world of uh, gaining, having, doing, becoming, actually quite a distraction to looking at the essentials of life. <clears throat> and here we are on retreat, seven-day retreat. And although it's not as ascetic as it would be at the time of the Buddha going forth into the homeless life, we give up certain things that we're used to, certain comforts, whether it's cappuccino or the comfort of loved ones or being able to do what we want, listen to music, watch TV, read the papers, surrender ourselves to the schedule. So even even here, that where it, on one level is quite comfortable, there's a certain renunciation. And yet we see that that renunciation of certain, uh, certain of our activities and uh, busyness actually helps support a deeper seeing, a deeper knowing, deeper understanding. So this, this question about the context, the context of renunciation and asking the question, what is our deepest aspiration? What is it we aspire to in our lives, in our spiritual lives? And the next question that comes naturally for me with that question is, what supports that deepest aspiration? And what gets in the way of it? What obstructs it? And if there are things that obstruct it, are we willing to let go? Are we willing to surrender, to renounce those things? Sometimes I think it's a little difficult for us growing up in our contemporary culture <coughs> where, we're, where we're used to getting things quite easily. And there's a certain expectation about getting things easily. And I came across an advert in a fashion magazine. It was an interior design fashion magazine. And it had a big picture of a Chinese laughing Buddha uh, as, as part of the, the decor of the house. And it said, How satisfying to pay homage to this most revered of ancient traditions within spitting distance of Starbucks. So this person obviously wasn't that keen, you know, in going forth into the caves in China, you know, to look for the deepest truths. It had to be down the road from a Starbucks cafe. And I think that's quite symbolic of the, the general level of renunciation in the culture. <clears throat> so what are we renouncing on this path, this path of awakening? The Buddha, after his awakening in Bodh Gaya, India. In the, in the weeks following his realization, he formulated many of his insights and understandings into the teachings that we've hand, had handed down to us today. And the main, the main structure of that teaching, he formulated into the Four Noble Truths. He saw that there is suffering in this life, that it's a truth of existence, there is suffering. And then he looked to the cause of that suffering. What is the cause of this suffering? He discovered that the cause of suffering 
was this force of craving, the force of grasping, wanting, not wanting. And he discovered the possibility of being free of suffering, which is a cessation of this very force of wanting, of craving, of clinging. And he discovered the path to it, the Eightfold Path. And he encouraged us to understand the truth of suffering and to let go of its cause. So I'd like to speak a little about the cause of suffering and how we work with that, this force of wanting, the force of desire. We're all very familiar with this. In fact, we're experts in this. It's this very deep-rooted, restless, incessant desire for experience, for wanting things that aren't here, wanting things to be different, wanting things to be uh, going according to our will and our plan. It's a very deep quality of restlessness that doesn't allow us to settle and keeps us looking outside of ourselves, outside of our experience for something, for something extra. It's also very much the flip side of that, which Shada spoke to much of last night, is the force of not wanting of resisting, of not liking what's happening, of avoiding or rejecting. So we have these two very strong forces in our being, the forces of wanting and the forces of not wanting. And we can see them very clearly here. You can probably remember many times here of that sense of, I wish this wasn't happening. I wish this person wasn't here. I wish this was a little different. Maybe if they turned the heat up or turned the heat down or had more carpets on the floor or a little more food at tea. It's just this endless wanting things to be different. I was once in Kathmandu and I was in the, near the bazaar and uh, a man who was obviously used to working with tourists came out of his house and seemed to be quite surprised to see me uh, outside his house and he looked amused and said something and I went hmm, sounds interesting the hook the hook of wanting something so we have these two poles this, 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 this wanting for things and this not wanting things And when these forces are at play and are quite strong in our lives, which they are frequently, it actually feels quite wearisome. The endless wanting mind, the endless avoiding, escaping mind. It becomes quite tiring to be at the will of that, to be at the force of that. And yet we spend much of our lives trying to get what we want and trying to avoid what we don't like. There was a sign, shop sign in San Francisco and in big bold letters it said, indulge your cravings. Obviously it wasn't a Buddhist. But that's what the materialist world does. It, it invites us and teases us and tempts us to uh, satisfy every one of our longings. In fact, that's what we practice in the world, getting what we want. So we, we see that quite clearly in the world of materialism. You look through any magazine. 
like Joseph has this Joseph Goldstein has this story of um, this concept of catalog consciousness. We pick up a catalog, we could be sitting quite quietly, happily, just enjoying a cup of tea, and then a catalog pops through the door, or one of many catalogs, and we go through the catalog looking for something to desire. As if we didn't desire enough already, we actually practice trying to find something to want, and then we want it, feel longing, feel deficient, and then spend lots of money. But we also do this here, you know, just because we come on a retreat and we're in silence and we're in a meditation center, the forces of desire don't stop, as you've seen. A couple of people mentioned in the groups yesterday, um, one person mentioned having very blissful experiences in the meditation, which is all fine, well and good, and that happens. And then, of course, the subsequent meditations spend his time trying to repeat the experience. The wanting mind hooks onto a pleasant experience and tries to repeat it. Or even if we haven't had the blissful experience, we've heard about it. So we try and adjust and gear our meditation to hopefully it will happen. And what's frustrating for the mind is that often we can't make those things happen. It's actually quite humbling when we come on retreat and we see that our mind actually has very little control over things. And the unfortunate side of that seeking to repeat an experience or seeking after any experience is we miss what's happening in the moment. We postpone that sense of happiness thinking it's somewhere in the future in some experience, in some thing, in somebody. And we also forget that those moments of peace and happiness, well-being, bliss, they actually come about partly due to the fact that in that moment there isn't that force of wanting, there isn't that force of craving. If we looked at that experience, we'd probably see there's quite a sense of ease, of resting, of acceptance, and not at all that force of wanting. We also see that here when we're walking. How many of you have found your favorite walking place? We often have our little, our little favorite spaces here on retreat. And then we go, we could be sitting quite quietly in a sitting, and then we go, oh, I better get to my walking place before somebody else, and up in the sitting, anxious, restless, wanting. And then somebody's there. And how dare they? Yeah, that's my walking place. And we think also, that happiness lies in the walking place. Does it really lie in that walking place? Actually, the grasping and the clinging to that walking place creates a lot of suffering. We cling to it. And then, of course, there's the, uh, the dining room. Mealtimes, often a, a big part of the retreat since there's not that much sensual stimulation. It's a very interesting place to watch the force of wanting mind. You hear the bell go, it's lunchtime. And the mind starts reflecting and hoping and wishing and all kinds of expectations and disappointments go on around the food. Sometimes we're on our third plate and we haven't really noticed what we're eating. We're so keen to actually get more experience. 
So the flip side of that wanting mind, as Shada said last night, is the not wanting mind, this force of aversion, this force of resistance, avoidance. And how much we can go through life in that mind state of not wanting, not liking, resisting, complaining. Now from England we do this very well. We're quite experts at the, the complaining mind. And yet, when we look closely, when we examine our experience, we can see and we can discover that happiness and unhappiness, liking and not liking, doesn't lie in the object itself. More lies in our relationship to it. So we could have the example of dullness. Many people have mentioned feeling dull. And for some, that's a great struggle dullness, sleepiness. It's like, oh, I didn't come onto the retreat to experience dullness. I came here to wake up and all I feel is sleepy most of the time. And so sometimes there's a great deal of resistance and struggle with sleepiness and dullness. And other times, dullness arises for whatever, for whatever reason, whatever condition. And we just notice, oh, now I'm feeling dull. That's okay. I can deal with dullness. It's just an arising and passing mind state. And there's no problem, no suffering, no resistance. So clearly, two very different experiences, yet the same experience of dullness, but two very different experiences in relationship to it. Does the happiness or unhappiness lie in the object or our relationship to it? Same with knee pain. Sometimes we sit down and the, the familiar tingles in the knee start arising, or the backache. And we go, oh no. I had three sits of this already, not another one. And then the mind kicks and screams. And then other times you could sit down, the same sensations, and there's just an awareness of tingling, stabbing, piercing, unpleasantness. And the mind is quite still and equanimous with that experience. Same experience, different relationship. The freedom in the moment lies in the relationship to experience, not the experience itself. (coughs) So where does renunciation fit in with this wanting mind? I want to make this distinction that the, the problem with some of the translations we talk about wanting grasping, sometimes it's translated as desire. And clearly, there's wholesome desires and, wholesome and unwholesome desires. So we have the, you know, a, a desire may arise to go to the bathroom, to meditate, whatever. Some very natural, uh, wholesome desires, which are obviously, of course, fine. And then there's the desires, the cravings, the wantings that lead to contraction, lead to pain, lead to suffering, lead to more desire. So it's, it's these I'm really speaking about. I found <clears throat> using inquiry and reflection around this force of the wanting mind very useful. So we can ask ourselves, when we get what we want, does it really do it? Does it really provide the lasting satisfaction that we're seeking? We're really looking for that. 
even though it may be disguised in a cup of Starbucks cappuccino, actually deep down we're all searching for deep and lasting peace. And yet this movement towards wanting and having and getting experiences, they're all temporary. They all come and go. And they don't provide that lasting peace we're looking for. When we really see that, and that's one of the things that we discover in meditation, when we really see very closely that all experience is transitory, it's always changing, no matter how good, no matter how bad, the best experiences in your life, the worst, they've all come and gone. Where are they now? When we see that, when we really know viscerally, tangibly, that all things come and go, it somehow takes the force out of the wanting mind. Because we know that no matter how great that experience we're seeking, it's going to pass. Or how bad that experience is going to be, it's going to pass. I just came back from India, spending a couple of months there, and there's certainly plenty of unpleasant sensations to experience. Last year we had a... um, In India there's a tradition of instead of having your loudspeakers of your music system inside the house, you put them outside your house, turn them around so everybody can hear. Often 24 hours a day. Very loud. And uh, gives us a lot of opportunity to work with aversion and pleasant experience, hearing... Once last year we had a travel agent outside the monastery that advertised about 12 hours a day tickets going to Kathmandu and Nepal and every few minutes we heard hello, hello, hello trying to grab people's attention which of course it did and then in Tibetan and then hello, hello, hello this would go on for several hours at a time and it it rocked some people's faith in impermanence would this really come to an end? Fortunately, electricity in India is very impermanent. That was our saving grace. But knowing the impermanence of even quite a lasting experience does bring about some relief. The Buddha said, when by knowing the impermanence of forms, sounds, odors, flavors, thoughts, and one sees as it actually is with proper wisdom, that such things, both formerly and now, are all impermanent, suffering, and subject to change, joy arises. Such joy as this is called joy based on renunciation. So when he says joy arises, that everything's passing away, the joy is the joy arises, the joy that arises from non-clinging. It's from being able to be with experience, fully participatory, knowing its transience and being able to let it go when it goes. Really, this is the joy of equanimity. And again, it's something we develop in the practice, being with our experience, pleasant, unpleasant, changing constantly. The mind develops a certain quality of equanimity. And this is what enables us to stay steady and touch a place of peace amidst whatever's happening. The Buddhist teachings perennially point to the fact 
that we can be at ease. It's, the, it's our potential to be at ease and at peace no matter what the circumstances. That's our birthright. That's our potential. Another thing that I've noticed in my practice is that when I'm caught up in the force of wanting, the force of desire, the force of resistance, it seems more and more clear to me that when I attach onto something, I've got to have something, and I sort of reach out for something, present or future, it seems clear that I, on some level, sacrifice the peace of my true nature for some fleeting, transitory experience. I'm sure you've all had that experience where you can be feeling quite at ease and quite peaceful, and then some thought arises, oh, I'd like to have a cup of tea, I must go make that phone call, or some memory arises. And quite easily we can move out of that place of ease and calm and peace into satisfying whatever thought and desire arose. A big step for me that occurred in my practice was when I realized that all these desires that arise in the mind, all these wantings and cravings and hopes, that I actually didn't have to fulfill all of them, which was a relief, because there's lots of them. I began to see that the desire, like anything, is impermanent. It arises in the mind, body, due to certain conditions. Stays around for a while and passes away. It can be a very strong wanting. Lust. Desire for money, wealth, fame, whatever it is. If we can stay steady in the middle of it, it will arise, it will do its dance, and it has a, a limited lifespan. If we don't buy into it, it passes away. We don't have to act on it. And when I, when I, when I really discovered this in an ongoing way, it, it led to a great sense of inner peace. That I wasn't anymore so much victim to the force of desire. Created a sense of space and choice in the mind that I could use some discriminating wisdom, that we can use discriminating wisdom, as to whether this is a wise, uh, a wise thing to act on or not. So in this sense, when we're letting go of the force of desire, really we're letting go of the acting out upon it, and we're letting go from a place of wisdom, not from aversion, not from denial, not from rejection. It's not the, oh my God, I'm grasping again. I've heard I'm not supposed to be doing that. I'm supposed to be a Buddhist. It's not that. It's desire arises. Oh, that's interesting. There's that wanting mind again. An old friend. Don't have to do anything with it. Just be with it. 
the wanting mind is unlikely to go. I hate to be the harbinger of bad news. And the teachings, certainly the teachings point to the, to the truth that we can purify the mind to such a degree that the wanting mind never arises again. And certainly that is the case of yogis through the ages. And at the same time, we may be working with the wanting mind for some time. So we need to come into a skillful relationship to it. So when we see the force of desire, the force of wanting in the mind, and we see it clearly in awareness with mindfulness, we're not identified with it, we're not caught up in it, there's really no problem. It's just another passing mind state. Just as knee pain arises, sounds, sensations, just another passing phenomena. When we're caught up and identified with it, that's when it's so easy to act out. So, at the same time, being watchful of the tendency, as I sort of just joked about before, of letting go and pushing away things. Letting go too quickly. Sometimes the fear arises when the wanting mind arises. Oh no, wanting again. We feel like we have to somehow react and let go of it. Really, it's in this clear seeing of it. It will actually release of its own accord. So what other other areas do we have to practice renunciation? Certainly on this spiritual life, the spiritual path, there are many areas of renunciation that aren't necessarily easy. I know His Holiness the Dalai Lama, who is a great world leader and religious leader of his people in Tibet. He says he longs for only one thing, which is to go on retreat and to be solitary, and to give up all of his duties. And yet, for the love of his people, he commits himself to a very rigorous schedule, to great renunciation. It's the quality of what's called a bodhisattva. A bodhisattva is somebody who renounces the pursuit of their own awakening and in, in, not instead, but equally dedicates their life to relieving the suffering of others. It can be a great renunciation. The story from Mother Teresa, which expresses this somewhat. Today I learned a good lesson. The poverty of the poor must be so often hard for them. When I went around looking for a home, I walked and walked till my legs and arms ached. I thought how they must also ache in body and soul, looking for home, food and help. Then the temptation grew strong. The palace buildings of Loreto, my old monastery, came rushing into my mind. All the beautiful things and comforts. In a word, everything. And this voice appeared to her. You have only to say a word and all that will be yours again. The voice of the tempter kept saying, Of free choice, my God, and out of love for you, I desire to, rem- I desire to remain and do whatever be your holy will in my regard. And from that point on, she ended up starting the uh, Sisters of Charity and Selfless Service for decades. 
And what's interesting about that story to me is that in the midst of the difficulty, the midst of the pain, the thought arose, oh, I can go back to the monastery, it's so comfortable, pleasant environment, lovely sisters. And it's easy, it's, it's interesting to watch in our experience when things are difficult, how easily we move into wanting the pleasant, into escaping into pleasant experience, rather than deal with what's difficult. So what else are we being asked to renounce? In a way, you could say that life is asking us to renounce all the time. Primarily because things aren't in our control. When things aren't in our control, we have to surrender to the way things are. Or we resist and we suffer. I was once taking a plane ride from London to, to, to Boston, actually. And we got 20 minutes into the air, and there was a loud boom. It sounded like a dull explosion on the left-hand side of the plane. And I thought, oh dear. <laughs> I've read about this. And sure enough, the, the pilot came on and said, we've had some, some uh, I forget what word he used, difficulty or something. <laughs> Some great British understatement. <laughs> and so we have to return back immediately and do an emergency landing. And we have to dump all of our fuel. And of course it was a great lesson in having to let go of control. What could we do? Sitting there on the plane, praying that the plane landed safely, and of course it did. But it was a great example. You know, we think, you know, the mind likes to think we're in control of things. And how easily it gets fooled into believing that. Just step outside. You know, we have to surrender to the weather. The cold, the snow, whatever it is, we never know what the weather's going to be. Except if you come to New England in winter, it's usually cold. Or if you happen to have stocks and shares. You know, great teaching in letting go. Or relationships. Great, great practice place for realizing we're not in control of things. However much we try, there's a great deal of renunciation in family life. But also in meditation, sitting quietly. Do we ask that thought that arose about our mother to be there? That sensation in the knee feeling of sadness. Are we really in control of that? It's just life bubbling, teeming, doing its thing. Sounds, sights, smells, tastes, memories, feelings, thoughts. So we have little control over what arises in our experience. But where we do have some freedom where the source of freedom arises in our, is in our relationship to what arises. We can react, resist, and fight, or we can open, accept, and let be. Another area that we encourage to look at on this path 
is in the area of what's called spiritual materialism. And we talk about the spiritual path as being one of renunciation, and yet, just as we come on, re- on a retreat and bring our old habits, so we do also in our lives. We have these ideas of getting something, getting enlightenment, getting free, becoming someone, becoming somebody, or having that miraculous enlightenment experience, fireworks, light, you know, you've seen it on TV probably, mystical experience, the one thing that's going to do it, and we'll be enlightened forevermore, and we'll retire. No more retreats. Just go to Bali or something. So we bring this idea of getting and wanting. It's the same movement of mind. It can lead to quite a controlling of our meditation to get a certain experience. But the irony is the path, freedom, is not about getting any experience whatsoever. It's an ongoing process of letting go of renouncing, not holding to any experience or anything is the source of freedom. We bring this wanting tendency, this sort of more spiritual materialist tendency here to our meditations. How long can we sit? Do I sit the stillest? Can I sit longer than that person who sits like, seems like they have rubber legs? Can I walk the slowest? How am I looking when I walk? Do I look really spiritual? Really cool? Like this race, this, it's like a race except the winner goes the slowest. Or how many retreats can I clock up? You know, I've done ten retreats last year. You know, I'm really, you know, I'm really doing good. It's not about attaining and getting something. We so easily forget. When I first became introduced to Buddhist practice, I was uh, a punk rocker. I had white, spiky hair and big earrings and funky clothes. And it's hard to imagine now, I know, but I did. <laughs> Honest. And... I looked around at the meditation center and I thought, well, nobody looks like me. So I shaved my head, put on very dull clothes, took off my earrings, and thought I'd become a good Buddhist. My sister called me a boring Buddhist. I thought that outer renunciation would be it. You know, I thought I would you know, just look the part. Of course, I didn't do it. It's an, it's an inner renunciation. Another place in our lives that calls for a quality of renunciation is this tendency we have, and it's a, I think it's a very modern cultural phenomenon, of wanting to do it all. Wanting to have it all, wanting to be both a Buddhist practitioner and work hard and have a family and this and that. And The mantra these days is, how's your life? Well, it's busy. How are you doing? Oh, I'm busy. And... So much gets lost, so much quality of life gets lost when we overstretch and take on too much. 
Obviously, there are times in our lives when we have no choice. But to look very honestly at those times where, or those situations where we do have a choice, where we do comprom- where we where we compromise so much quality of our living by doing too much, by taking too much on. And then there's a relationship to material things. There's a lovely story, <coughs> an Amish story. There was a somebody moved in to a house next door to an Amish family, Amish family, sorry. and the Amish man. Am I pronouncing it right? So. So the, so, the, so the family moving in with, with their cars and electric lawnmowers and computers and this and that and all the modern stuff we have with somewhat amusement. And the next day, the Amish man came around and brought some homemade jam and scones and things and, as a, and said, welcome and hope you have a nice day. And the man who just moved in said, oh, that's very generous, thank you. And the Amish man said, "Well, if any, I, I notice you have a lot of things. You know, if anything goes wrong, you know, just just let me know. I'll I'll, I'll help you out." And the man said, "Oh, that's very kind of you." He said, "Oh, that's no problem. I'll just tell you how to live without them." We could do with a few more of those folks around telling us that that we could do without those things. So again, it's not to say that things are bad in themselves. Obviously, we need many things to function in this life. Yet it's good to question how much of them do we need? How much of them actually bring a greater sense of ease and help and space and freedom in our lives? Or how much do they just clutter up our lives, preoccupy us, take up time, money, energy, how much of our self is wrapped up in them? How much of our self is wrapped up in our car? Or the, the, the newness or the size of our car or our house? St. Francis, the Christian mystic, he said, Riches prick us with a thousand troubles in getting them, as many cares in preserving them, and yet more anxiety in spending them, and with grief in losing them. Not a great advert, is it? So it's again, it's 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 a it's a matter of coming into skillful relationship with material possessions. Now, that wisdom of relationship partly comes from actually seeing we don't own anything. We actually really are just caretakers of our things. It's actually impossible to own anything. And if we also realize that they too are all subject to change, it will help release the sense of grasping and holding, the sense of pain that comes when they break or they rust or they disappear. And there's a couple more points I want to touch on. Another important area for this quality of renunciation is relationship to our thinking process. Most of us, often the first insight that happens on an insight meditation course is, oh my God, how much I think. I'm thinking all the time. 
must just be on retreat. I can't imagine I do this in my life. And we seem like we're somewhat addicted to our thoughts. It's very hard for us to experience anything without composing a story or an essay about it and telling our friends back home and our minds about it. And yet we notice how free it can be to come out of that thought trance, come out of that obsession with our thinking. Not only do we think a lot, but often our thoughts are inaccurate. They're often about ourselves, and they're often very negative, often quite destructive. So if renunciation is really about serving greater peace and freedom, how about we learn to practice some renunciation around our addiction to thinking? Around our addiction to perhaps negative self-views? To not giving our thoughts such power and authority. A thought is just a thought. Yet we give it so much weight. And lastly, and certainly in the Buddhist tradition, the biggest renunciation of all is letting go of the distorted view about the sense of self. The sense of myself as something that's fixed, that's something that's separate from everything else, that's somehow independent from everything else, that's unchanging, when we look into the nature of who we are, we see that these things actually aren't the case. This isn't a view or a dogma, it's something to be explored in your own experience. Are we really that separate? Are we really that independent? So to conclude, I just want to say... One of my favorite lines of the Buddha, he talked about the mind, the nature of the mind being naturally pure and radiant. The nature of our mind, the nature of who we are, is naturally radiant, clear. Obviously, we don't experience that much of the time. And why is that? He said it's because that radiance and clarity is, is obscured by visiting defilements, by ignorance. And so our practice here, our practice in our lives, is to understand and see that which obscures. And in a way, once we see and understand, we can learn to let go. When we learn to let go of the obscurations, we can rest more in the clarity of our innate nature. Clarity, peace, ease, radiance. Ever at peace with things. So let's sit quietly for a couple of minutes, please.
So may our practice here be dedicated to the welfare and happiness of all beings everywhere. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.